All right, good morning, everyone. It's a little after 9.30, so I think we'll get started. Good to see everybody. Happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers. Thank you for the work you do, the ministry you have within our, our households. It is a blessing indeed. And uh, of course, I, I'd be remiss if I did not mention I'm teaching again and we've got bad weather. So you all will be happy to know that next week I won't be teaching, so there should be good weather next week. So that's, that's a blessing as well. Um, one other observation I've made here, I would say really since we've transitioned from um, Eric teaching to me, and Pastor's been in the book of James. I don't know if you've all caught on to this or not, but I certainly have since I'm now teaching Sunday school. And I feel like every Sunday, Pastor has mentioned that passage in James about, hey, you better be careful if you're going to be a teacher. And every Sunday, I go home under conviction thinking twice about the decision to be teaching Sunday school. So um, I, I certainly am well aware of that. Well, today we are going to do something a little bit out of the ordinary in terms of how we've done these lessons on bibliology up to this point. There's safety in what we've done in that we're able to state what we believe and then look at scriptural support for what we believe, and, and that's great. Uh, we, we recognize the Bible as God's authoritative word, uh, but today is a little bit different. Uh, we're going to take this week and talk about the canon of Scripture, which oftentimes is really thrown into the whole bibliology conversation. And the issue with that is the Word of God does not, in and of itself, tell us these are the books that are going to be part of the canon or the group of books and writings that we consider Scripture. So we're going to take a bit more of a, an extra-biblical look historically at how we get to the 66 books of the Bible um, that we, we know today. So um, I, I, I do appreciate our typical approach, hopefully you all do too, and that we can normally say whether it's Grant or Wayne or Eric and maybe my other lessons, we can ground ourselves in what the Word of God says, look to Scripture and say, all right, thus says the Word of the Lord. Today will be a, a bit different, though, uh, from that normal route we take. Well, let's consider uh, the Word of God that we hold in our hands today. And let's ask ourselves, do we really appreciate and value God's Word that we have? And isn't it amazing the access we have to God's Word? I, I mean, I don't even know how many translations we have uh, these days. We know it's quite a few. I, I'm not going to say they're all great, but we do have quite a few translations of God's Word. And not only that, I'm going to hold up my, my Bible, which is within this uh, little, little box here. But we also have access to our Bible, many of us, on our devices, right? I'm guessing some of you following along today might be following on a device, or maybe you've got uh, the leather-bound version like I do. It's not always been the case throughout history, has it? Uh, this idea where we can take God's Word and combine it into one booklet or one device 
That's a pretty new concept within the last uh, several hundred years. You think about the early church and how they were transmitting the word of God around. This was done with hard work. Uh, we, we didn't even get the printing press until, what, 1440, thanks to Gutenberg. And that then allowed for the mass production, the mass copying of God's word and other books as well. But this was tough work. And we had scribes who did this tough work. Uh, I certainly wouldn't want this job. Um, you think about all the copying, all, you've got to be alert, you've got to be attentive, and certainly that did lead, lead to some errors over time, didn't it? Uh, these, these were fallible humans who would copy uh, the different manuscripts. And uh, that, that, of course, is what we are thankful for today, that hard work which has led now to the easy work we have and the easy access to God's Word. All right, well, as I mentioned last week, when you bring up a, a retired junior high teacher, um, I, I've got to do some review with you. So uh, let's, let's go back to week three and see what we, we remember from, from last week. Who can, who can tell us what two aspects of bibliology we, we talked about last week? Anybody remember we talked about two? Dan? Sufficiency? Yes, that, that was one of them. Yep, thank you. And what was the other one? That's right. The Bible's necessary, the necessity of Scripture. So it is sufficient and it is necessary. Exactly. Uh, which of these aspects did 2 Peter 1, 1 through 8 address, especially verse 3? So, that's right. The sufficiency of Scripture. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All right, how about this key passage from last week? What reality is addressed in Romans 10, 17? Grant? Amen. So the necessity of the word of God when it comes to salvation, faith. God, this is a true or false question. God and morality can be recognized without the Bible. Is that true or false? That is true. Yeah, you can, you can look around and see evidence of a creator. Uh, Romans 1 and Romans 2 talk about this. And the word of God, or I should say the law of God, is written on the hearts of, of mankind as well. And that's in Romans 2. And then what scripture passage supports that reality? And I just gave it away. I tell you what. All right. Let's move on to our new lesson today, uh, the canon of Scripture. And let's start with some guiding definitions. First of all, what it is not. It's not a weapon. So you might hear the word canon and think about uh, the, uh, the older form of how we used to fight back in the, back in the day with, uh, with a canon. You can see the difference in spelling. Uh, the weapon has a double N. And when we talk about the canon of Scripture, we're talking about C-A, singular N-O-N. It's also not a camera. How many of you own a Canon camera? <laughs> All right, we've got a few out there. Yeah, good. Can. Uh, I, I remember growing up, there was a Canon commercial for a Rebel camera. Do you remember that? Andre Agassi, the tennis player, he, he was out there doing a commercial. And, and the, the slogan was, image is everything. So even with that mantra, you should know that no connection to the Bible 
uh, when we're talking about uh, the Canon camera. Also, it is not, when we talk about the canon of Scripture, it is not humans giving divine authority to various books. All right, so that's a distinction we need to be careful to make uh, as we speak about the canon of Scripture. Not humans being the ones placing divine authority on the books that we are looking at and considering to be the Word of God. So what is it? If it's not those things, what is the canon of Scripture? Well, there are going to be three definitions, and I think this series of definitions is probably uh, in order chronologically, too, as, as we've moved through time. Sometimes we've changed definitions to match the reality on the ground, and I think that's been the case uh, with these definitions of canon. So the first definition here is a principle or a rule, standard, norm, uh, from the Greek word, and again, I'm not I've not studied Greek or Hebrew, unfortunately. I wish I had. So I don't know if you say kanon or canon, but you see it's spelled with a K. So to me, it looks a lot like our English word. So I, I will say this is a transliteration, which means you take a word from the original language and it looks quite a bit like the word we have in our current language. Okay, um, And that means a measuring rod. So that was kind of the original uh, definition of, of canon. Second definition uh, enacted rule to govern religious groups. All right, so you're starting to see a, a bit of a connection, and especially as you think about the Old Testament and the New Testament, you can certainly look at the Old Testament and make a good case for this definition, right? Uh, that you had the law, and that certainly was uh, for the nation of Israel to govern how they, how they lived. And I think where we are today when we talk about the canon of, of Scripture would be this third definition, a collection of books accepted as legitimately from the author. All right, so that will be our prime definition. But again, you can, you can make a case for each one of these definitions when we, when we talk about the canon of Scripture. And for our purposes today, the scope, we're going to look at 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament because there are different canons. Different religious groups around the world will say, this is the group of books we think is the Word of God over here, and this other group may say, no, we think it has those, those books, but it might be a little bit different. So it, it does change depending on the religious affiliation and sometimes the geographical location. Okay, let's talk about the purpose. Why is it important to have uh, a canon of Scripture where, where we can understand what's been identified as the Word of God. And I think the key word here is recognize. If you go back to what we said, the canon is not. It's not our job to say, okay, yeah, the, we're going we're gonna to call this divinely inspired. We're, we're pronouncing that upon a certain book. That is not our job. That is what God has done. When God worked through these writers, that was his job. Once he speaks through, that is considered canon. All right, so we as humans have had to go through the process to identify or recognize what these writings are. And this varies a little bit with the Catholic Church. And uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about the difference here where the Catholic Church and other churches like the Catholic Church, they want to have the church have this high level of authority where they can impart that divine nature into writings. We don't believe that. We would say that God, through the process of inspiration, 
has already done that. He's the ultimate authority. He's the one that's going to be bestowing uh, his word uh, through the writers, through the process of inspiration, and that's how it works. So we want to be careful not to say we as a church can give that um, ability or authority onto certain scriptures. Now, uh, some of the difficulties as, as we talk about the, the purpose, why this was needed to, to go through the careful process of identifying what is scripture, we have to take a look at some of the conditions and situations that, that compelled uh, the identifying of a canon, especially around the New Testament. So let's think back. Um, there was persecution in the early church, uh, very heavy persecution. So we know that most of the apostles were, were martyred. And this started taking place under Nero, and it continued all the way into the late 200s. And so the situation on the ground was pretty dire if you were a Christian. Uh, it wasn't like today where we are pretty free and open to discuss the Bible and how we think about the Bible and maybe share the Bible. Uh, these were folks living in the catacombs, and they did not have the blessing of the Internet. They did not have instant message capabilities. So you had a lot of diverse and I would say divergent, um, very scattered Christian groups all over the known world at this time. So they weren't necessarily able to maybe read a letter from Paul in one part of the world versus a letter from Peter, maybe not as accessible in another part. So there were, there were difficulties in getting everybody together and on the same page. Then you had heretics during this time. And again, we're talking, I, I would say the close of the canon happened once Revelation was written around uh, AD 90. Okay, I think there's strong consensus on, on that. The, the date is about right. Um, so from AD 90 all the way until the canon gets recognized, uh, with the 27 books, which we'll talk about in a minute. But during this time period, especially in the second century, you had characters like Marcion who came along and they wanted to get on board. They wanted to make a name for themselves in history and they were adding new books to the Bible. So th this was causing a problem. This was, this was adding chaos to what we hoped would be nice order uh, in terms of having the word of God in our hands and Marcion was not the only one. And notice I put his name in bold uh, because he actually was the son of a bishop. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how some of the questions and challenges to the authority of the word of God have come from within faith groups themselves. So isn't it sad yet interesting how some of these major challenges have come from people who should know better? who have had a close connection to the truth, and for whatever reason, whether it's making a name for themselves or uh, they, they have just become a tool of the enemy, uh, they end up causing chaos for the church. There were also new gospels that were, were showing up. Now, they sound good, right? I mean, if you want to hear a firsthand account from those who are around Jesus Christ, as we've seen with uh, Matthew, uh, Mark, because of Peter, uh, Luke and, and John are four main Gospels that have really stood the test of time. Um, you, you look at those four and say, yeah, that's great. We've got some eyewitness accounts. You know, in the case of Luke, he penned a couple of the books of the New Testament. He was around the apostles. He was around Christ. Um, 
But all of a sudden, these new gospels like Thomas and Philip and Peter um, start showing up. And, and you think, well, that seems to sound good. And it did catch on for, for many people. But was it really inspired of God? And so these were some of the, the difficulties and challenges uh, that really helped us push for what really is the Word of God. And then you've got different viewpoints of the early church fathers. And uh, you've got guys like Origen and Augustine and Athanasius and Irenaeus. Uh, some folks, you know, I haven't seen for many years, but these had different views. Some of them thought, hey, 22 of what we have out of the 27 today, 22 of those books should be in the Word of God. Some thought, well, maybe 24... So there were some hit and miss from the main bishops of the time in terms of what the Word of God should look like. So all of this was causing chaos, and um, thankfully, people didn't just stand around and go willy-nilly. There, there started to become a process put into place to identify this. So let's get into that process. So the timeline we're looking at, first of all, for the Old Testament, as we talked about the 39 books, I would say by 200 B.C., uh, there was pretty strong consensus on what those 39 books of the Old Testament were going to be. And this was done during the intertestamental period. So the last book of the Old Testament, of course, was Malachi. Uh, Once that wrapped up, we would say God was done speaking uh, during that time period. And again, strong consensus and primarily driven by the Jews who were the primary audience of the Old Testament, and Christians, as they came along, agreed with the 39 books of the Old Testament. Now, if you notice, I did write with some spilling over into uh, the A.D. years. So there were, there were still ongoing conversations, and then what we'll find out a little bit later, uh, the Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox Church do something a little bit different. In terms of the New Testament recognition of our, I should say, 20, yeah, 22 books by AD 200. Notice they weren't quite 27 yet, but then by the time we get to AD 400, we had pretty strong consensus that the 27 books we have in our Bible today are God's Word. Uh, but again, about halfway through that point, we had some of the church fathers going back and forth about uh, maybe it should be 22, maybe it should be 27. So just out of curiosity, does anybody know some of the books that were in question uh, that were a little bit more difficult to ascertain if if they were God's word? Okay, so Maccabees, part of the Old Testament question mark, right? So considered part of the Apocrypha, Eric? Yeah, Hebrews was was one. They they, They certainly had to wrestle with Hebrews, and why is that? Yes, thank you. Uh, so the question uh, I posed was which books uh, were in question in terms of what should be part of the canon. Eric said Hebrews, and he pointed back to Marcion, the character we mentioned earlier, saying he is anti-Semitic and he did whatever he could to keep anything Jewish 
away from the canon. And he really even had a decimating approach to his view of the Old Testament as well, Marcion. Yeah, what, any, anybody else know some of the other books that were in question? So, for, Grant? Okay, Grant said Jude, and that certainly was one that was, took a little bit more time to work its way through. Yeah, that's exactly right. Any other thoughts on some of the books that took off, Wayne? No, he did not. <laughs> Why didn't Martin Luther like James? Because of the fact that uh, he was just put by grace of all. Having grown up as a Catholic as a works salvation, but now he realized that it wasn't by works, but it was by grace. But now James says that if we are saved, we ought to show some works. And he kind of got those two things backwards. Okay, so just repeating what Wayne said, he made the point that Martin Luther, who was a reformer, uh, he, he didn't believe James should be in the canon because there's so much emphasis on works in the book of James. It was counter to the strong conviction that Luther held, and I would say we all hold, uh, that the just shall live by faith. You don't earn your way to heaven. And so, yeah, Martin Luther did indeed have an issue with James. And so, yeah, thank you for, for, for those good, good responses. Uh, there were some questions about Second and Third John as well, and then there were some folks who weren't sure about Revelation. Uh, so those were some of the other books that took a little bit more time. And one of the, the main issues that came up was, uh, you know, some of these books don't readily identify an author, and that certainly is the case with Hebrews. We still struggle today understanding who, who in the world wrote Hebrews. And note here that those critics today who want to attack the Bible will look back and they'll say, oh, why did it take you so long to recognize what, what is the word of God? And they're going to use that gap of time. So as you interact with those who might challenge your faith, your belief in, in the Word of God, uh, be, be ready to answer that, okay? So that is one of, the, one of the challenges we face. And the councils that convened throughout the fourth century, and this is all part of the process again, and I said a new era, you see up here on the notes, they're the ones who would meet to discuss. So you had Council of Nicaea, I think that was around 325, and then you had the Council of Hippo, which was around 393, and I believe the last major council to meet to discuss which books ought to be in the canon um, was Carthage in 397. All right, so they're, they're meeting. These bishops would come together, have these conversations. Some would say, ah, I don't know about Hebrews. We don't know the author. Well, we can rule out this one from the second century because that certainly wasn't linked right back to an apostle. So this is some of the conversation they would have uh, to identify and recognize uh, the Word of God. So let's talk, we've mentioned a little bit, but let's get into the criteria they, they utilize to recognize the writings that belong in the New Testament canon. And even though I, I said we're really not in the Word of God today, going through a chapter and a verse, um, hopefully as we go through these, these different criteria, you will see some principles of Scripture in place as these folks work their way through. 
So the first criteria they, they, they looked at was, was there a connection to an apostle? And has there been proper passage of time? So, again, some of these names like Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Philip, Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Mary, they could rule out because they were able to identify some of these things were written in the second century, not directly connected to an apostle or an associate of an apostle. So that apostle and passage of time criterion was, was key, and that helped them eliminate several of these. The next criterion is, does it agree with other scripture? Okay. If God is the author, as Brother Howie reminded us early on in our study, then there's going to be unity, right? There's going to be unity from the Old Testament into the New Testament. There should not be a conflicting thought. Now, does God operate a little bit different at times? Yes, but there should not be any contradiction with other scripture. Another criterion they used was, was it received and accepted by churches? So many of these letters uh, that were written were sent to churches. And some of these churches knew the apostles pretty well. So they would be able to say or authenticate the truth of these writings. And I think Paul was connected to several, and we again go back to 2 Peter 3.16, where it talks about uh, some differences going on, and then he acknowledges, um, this is Peter, talking about Paul's writings being difficult to understand. If you go to Colossians 4, you're able to see that, hey, these letters that have been written are intended to be circulated to other churches. And that was part of the process. Again, could be difficult at times. Some of these letters are shorter, so that's good news for the scribe who's trying to copy this and pass it along um, compared to maybe having to take care of the, the whole Old Testament. And another point, maybe this is kind of a sub-point to uh, the second criterion, but do the writings contain high values and morals reflecting Holy Spirit inspiration? Um, so I, I think that that makes pretty good sense. Again, just kind of connected back to, to point number two. So that's, that's a bit of the process of what those councils who met together worked their way through to identify and recognize Scripture. Okay, so the results of the canon. We see strong agreement uh, with Protestants and Jews on the Old Testament canon. All right, so that's, that's good. Uh, we've got agreement is good, especially when it's agreement around the truth. So 39 books of the Old Testament, if you talk to most Protestants and most Jews, they would say, yes, we, we, are, we are on board with that. Despite a few concerns and questions, there is strong consensus on the New Testament canon. So the 27 books we would say are part of the New Testament. There is, and even, even as Wayne noted, in more recent times with Martin Luther, there are some people who will say, I'm, I'm not so sure. You know, he, Hebrews, um, again, because of the lack of a definite author. Now, going back to Hebrews, just as a side note, they did put it into the canon because they were convinced it was Paul early on. Now, we today still have a little bit of uncertainty about who the author was, but that's what helped the early councils agree to include Hebrews. Now, some challenges over time. 
various church leaders have not always agreed on which books have been accepted into the canon. And I, I talked a bit about this with some of the early church fathers who, who many of them thought there should be 22 books in the New Testament. Um, now, some of them over time switched, and they, they got closer to that 27 number. But, but just want you to understand historically uh, that has been a challenge. And again, for those who get into textual criticism and uh, engage in these scholarly debates, they will be happy to point this out. All right, and then the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Again, another challenge over time. Notice I did not include the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Church at the very top under the agreement because what they've done with the Old Testament is they've included a group of books that is known as the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha. Any of you uh, ever read the, any books from the Apocrypha? Okay. All right. Good. Got a few here. Uh, so those of you who have read it, are there any favorite portions of the Apocrypha? Or do you find any value in what you've read with the Apocrypha? Yeah, yeah. No, and I appreciate that because... in Yeah, so he was sharing that from the Apocrypha, one of the key books is uh, the Maccabees. What are the first and second Maccabees, I think? And there is not uh, much in the way of spiritual value. It's more historical value um, in terms of some of the violence that took place. And so that's what, that's what Eric was sharing. And in college, when I took a course called the Intertestamental Period, that's where we got our information. That was the bulk of the action was around what the Maccabees had done. So, Grant? Right, so, yeah, so Eric's making the point that some of these apocryphal books are so focused on the Jewish culture, which is important to understand contextually, and then Grant made the point that in the Maccabees, there isn't much of a spiritual connection. It was more of a, a very much a focus on the Maccabees, so, and the, the revolts taking place uh, there. Yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll just say, I... You know, before I even knew I was going to be teaching this 
course and this lesson specifically. Last winter, I was with my, my brother-in-law and brother uh, in Wisconsin for Christmas, and I just started talking to my brother-in-law, who's um, the, the chief product officer of a Bible software company called Logos, and uh, we just happened to talk about one of the apocryphal books called the Book of Enoch, which is actually referenced in the Book of Jude. And I don't know if any of you have ever read the Book of Enoch. It's really interesting. I'll, I'll grant it that. And I, I, remember, I remember we were discussing a part of the Book of Enoch where it talks about the birth of Noah. Uh, and so some of these books, and I, I chuckle because if you were to read it and you would see that Noah was born, came out, hair was white, eyes were beaming like the sun, he lit up the whole room. I mean, it really is fanciful. I'll, I'll give it that. But that's an example of some of these apocryphal books and some of the information they contain that's like, whoa, really? Does that really happen? And one of the scholars I will point out to you here at the very end of our lesson I hear him talking about, I believe it's the Gospel of Peter. And he says that in the Gospel of Peter, once Christ rises from the dead, we actually get the story. You know, our, our Gospels right now don't really talk about the process of what it looked like when Christ came out of the tomb. But apparently, in the Gospel of Peter, Christ comes out of the tomb, and his, his head goes all the way up to the clouds, um, and then behind him, out of the tomb, comes the cross that he was crucified on. Just comes marching right out of the tomb. So maybe uh, to try to work your way through some of that and identify, okay, you, you, can, you can see maybe why some of these gospels and stories that are connected to Scripture are a little far-fetched at times. Yes? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat that. So the point was made that some of these Gospels that showed up were given the name of somebody prominent, typically a disciple or an apostle, so that it sounded good, more credence, so maybe attract the ears of listeners more, which is right. Pseudopigrapha. Yeah. Okay. Right.
Right. So Eric made the point that the Apocrypha written by legitimate authors, whereas some of these Gospels that came along uh, in the second century, known as the Pseudopigrapha, because a lot of times they were not connected to the true author. We, there were authors taking some of these names of apostles, again, to make it sound a little more appealing to the listener. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good distinction. Oops, let's see. Okay, yeah, and so just getting back and, again, following up here with, with what the Catholics and Eastern Orthodox uh, churches have done over time related to the Apocrypha. Eric had just alluded to this. And in, in they kind of countered the Reformation uh, if you look at the timing of this Council of Trent, they were then adding the apocryphal books uh, back into the canon as, again, a counter to the Reformation. And so uh, they differ. You see, we had agreement at the top with the Protestants and Jews on the Old Testament canon, but then the Catholic Church, uh, Eastern Orthodox Church, they kind of went their own way uh, when it comes to what, what the Old Testament should look like. Okay. So here we go. We just have a few minutes left. Let's uh, hit some summary points here, and then uh, we'll, we'll open it up with the time we have left. First thing, the canonization of Scripture was important in recognizing writings that were inspired of God. So this process, we talked about a purpose, and then the process, understand this was important to do because of those challenges and the difficulties that uh, the early church encountered. Second note, the church does not have divinity-granting powers. So again, when you think of divinely inspired writings, think only of God. He's the one responsible for that, the church. We don't elevate the church's authority to call something. It's the church's authority to recognize uh, what those writings are. Time has only strengthened the case for us knowing we hold God's word in our hands. Uh, we've seen this. We've come across manuscripts within the last 80 years that have helped us understand even more. So uh, sometimes we've relied on the earliest and the oldest manuscripts, but then uh, it takes years to find more manuscripts. Now, some of you may remember a movie that came out around 2014 called The Da Vinci Code. I think that got a lot of people interested in some of these gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas. And uh, <laughs> I remember one thing I read, I think it was on, on gotquestions.org. They, they closed, closed out with a phrase I like, and it said, please doubt the Gospel of Thomas. <laughs> I, thought that was, I thought that was pretty good. And maybe this is a phrase I, I, I've heard pastors say. Somehow I had this idea of just the, the reliance we have on faith as we go about not only our, our salvation, but our, our sanctification. As we live our lives, faith is our key, isn't it? Uh, so, pastor, if, you, if you've used this phrase, thank you. I, it was in my mind. But a faith enterprise, do we believe the same God who moved men uh, to write what he will is able to ensure we today have his inspired word? And I would hope we would say yes. I hope, I, I hope we would say resoundingly yes. We need to further understand this process so that we can defend this aspect of bibliology uh, to an enemy and a world. And notice I pointed out another guy's name who is probably the leading critic here in our country who is in the business of attacking God's word. 
I, I mentioned the phrase textual criticism, which is great. That's where you get into these scholarly debates. You look deep at, at these underlying factors of any given topic. And this man, Bart Ehrman, is the name that kept coming up over and over as one of our uh, main enemies. And I, I, I don't mean to use that in a negative way, but he is, he is out to take down the word of God. And I put his name in bold, just as I did with Marcion, because he too came from a Christian background, unfortunately. So it's like, if we find ourselves getting too cute, how far, how long will it be until we are fighting against God? when we get too cute for our faith. And so we've seen this, I think, on a few different examples today. Um, so, I, I, again, I'm just going to go back to the start of the statement. It's our job to further understand this process. I, I'm just giving a high-level overview of canonization today, all right? But it's our job to be able to defend our faith against the arguments and the, the battles that we are encountering today uh, from the enemy, Satan, and from some of the pawns he is using today in our world. And just a couple of names I wanted to give you. Um, I've, I've read and listened to these guys quite a bit this past week. Um, two, two of the main biblical scholars who talk about the importance of understanding the canon. Uh, they, they'll get into other issues like inerrancy and some of the same aspects we, we've talked about. But if you want to get into and, and look these fellows up, I recommend it. James White and uh, Michael, Michael Kruger, uh, scholars. All right, they're, they're both doctoral level uh, gentlemen. Okay, so we are almost at time here. So any comments, insights, or questions as we, as we close down?